The emergency room is the window to the community and the front door to the hospital, driving admissions, ancillary services, and supporting all other areas of the hospital as patients get the comprehensive care they need during and after their ER visit. So, how do rural hospitals increase emergency room admissions and keep patients local for their care? With department-trained staff, good decision-making protocols, and a dedication to keeping their patients. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 104 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is someone who is dedicated to helping rural hospitals increase admissions from their own emergency rooms. That's right. We are talking with someone whose work with rural hospitals has made her well-versed in the process, procedures, and protocols that allow more patients to be admitted from the ER to inpatient care at the same rural hospital they're already sitting in. Our guest today is Carla Wilbur, Senior Consultant with Stroudwater Associates. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Carla. Thank you, JJ. It's a pleasure. So to start, Carla, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Stroudwater? Sure. Um, So I am a doctoral prepared nurse. Uh, Nursing actually was a second career for me. Um, I went back to nursing school um, as a non-traditional student and have spent a lot of time working full time while, um, you know, pursuing my ongoing education. Um, when I um, I was completing my doctorate, I decided that I had been in the hospital, rural community hospital environment for some time and wanted to do something different with my education and experience. Um, mm-hmm. I had a friend that was with Stroudwater, so I had the great fortune of um, having a, um, a, another colleague direct me in that um, to that space. Um, so I've been with Stroudwater now for um, eight and a half years and love every every minute of it. So what kind of work are you typically focusing on with Stroudwater? You know, as a senior consultant, is there a certain practice area that you focus in? Are you just doing things related to nursing? No, any type of clinical operations. So a lot around emergency department throughput, uh, quality, patient safety, uh other clinical operations work. I'm lean trained. So we look at lean process improvement opportunities, quality improvement um, within organizations, the care spectrum work that I'll mention um, at a later date uh, now. And then um, just anything that, that comes up that hospitals need. Our rural hospitals don't have a lot of resources. So anything that they really need to help improve their operations. Well, you certainly work for a great company. We have had a long-term relationship with Stroudwater. Uh, in fact, working with Eric Schell, we've had him on this program before. That's right. Uh, he's been on the podcast uh, talking about the Shaky Bridge. Uh, we've also had Opal Greenway, mm-hmm. and uh, Opal has been part of our discussion. We talk about physicians and engagement and some of those things. Uh, your company really spans, uh, you know, across the healthcare uh, continuum. I mean, you're looking at inpatient, outpatient, and we actually brought Stroudwater here several years ago to do a full assessment 
on our, our clinics. And it was a great opportunity really to share uh, with them our vision, our passion, but then for them to come back and say, all right, let's get real. These are the things that you should be doing. Uh, you know, you need to stop doing this and do this. And, you know, Eric can be direct. Uh, so we had uh, several work plans that had developed as a result of that, which we followed today. In fact, we had a meeting today uh, to talk about our clinics and a majority of what's on that list is what has been developed by Stroudwater. So all of that to say you work for a great company. And uh, it's so great to have you on our podcast today. And, you know, we we start with a question uh, on each of our podcasts, and it's called The Why. Uh, now, we do this on every episode, so we get to know you a little bit better. Our guests get to know you just a little bit better. And, and so what I want to know is what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would have to say the, the foundation of my why is that I... Uh, love to help people, communities, um, hospitals, clinics realize their own potential. Um, we have, as consultants for Stroudwater, the um, great opportunity to travel all over to see what works in rural hospitals and bring back those ideas to all of our clients. The rural hospitals, of course, have less resources, so we're there to share with them what what might help them in whatever area that needs improvement. So that's basically my why, is to really help rural hospitals be the best that they can be um, and and just kind of help to frame uh, where they are and where they would like to go. You know, I missed the piece. Uh, did, Did you work your entire career in a rural setting? My entire career has been in rural North Carolina, not as rural as some of the areas that I've traveled to, but nevertheless, community and rural um, hospital and clinic work. So I want to I want to jump in here to really the meat of of our conversation today. Um, You wrote a case study on emergency room admission rates and um, creating clinical care delivery spectrums uh, after working with a rural hospital on this very issue. And, you know, I, I'm interested because I find myself uh, as a CEO of this hospital every night and every morning worried about my ER rates, my, mm-hmm. my you know, conversion rates. I'm looking at my observations. I'm looking at my inpatient. It also, you know, as well as I do, that your emergency departments as the front window uh, to your hospitals, a window in, in front door. Also, we drive a lot of our business for ancillary services from what happens in your local ERs. And hospital executives, you know, we're not they're, they're, we're, we're not saying that you should be inappropriately coming to your ER if you have chronic back pain. Uh, we have to, I think we'll talk about that in a minute from a clinical perspective, Carl, I think you would agree. But there's a, there's a right pathway for individuals who need urgent and emergent care, and, and we can be that place here. But we often struggle. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes with what has happened post-pandemic. And that has been the issue of low admissions and low ER visits. So um, talk to us a little bit about this case study, um, what what initiated the project, and what was the problem that you were trying to solve when you were looking into this? Um, Originally, this started with a group of hospitals. Um, One of the networks that we um, happen to have the pleasure to work with had seen a real decrease in their admissions from their ERs and, re- and wanted to do a deep dive into the why. 
what ended up as a, um, a network project uh, then, then became something that we developed as our team developed, our clinical and quality service team developed as the clinical care delivery spectrum. The hospitals that we originally worked with in the case study is one of those hospitals. Um, they never had, or if they had in the past, looked formally at what types of patients they can admit to their organization. It had been a very, very long time. So in uh, most hospitals we've discovered have not really gone through a formal process of identifying the types of patients that are appropriate for their organization uh, and do they have the need for um, different equipment? Do they have the need for increased competencies for their nurses? What, what are the reasons that they transfer patients? They look at transfers mm -hmm. just to say, yeah, that one transferred. Yes, maybe that was uh, potentially we could have kept that patient, but doctor uh, so-and-so did, did not think so. So it's usually just the, pr the provider's decision, um, either on the hospital hospitalist side or the ER side or a combination of both that makes that decision. But hospitals haven't gone through a formal process of really analyzing why the transfers are occurring and why the admissions mm -hmm. are low. So that, that mm -hmm. was the impetus for this project. And we realized very quickly that there is a great deal of variation in why hospitals do or do not admit patients from the ER. Mm -hmm. So what was the solution to this? I mean, was this, did you come up with something brand new for this particular hospital or were you applying a, a known and successful strategy to tackle this issue? Because it's, I mean, it's not an easy one to just dive in and do. It's not like, here's our list and we're done, right? Right. No, we we actually developed, because of this project, a guide and helped to um, lead the hospitals in a systematic process of formally uh, reviewing every transfer um, and, and in, um, in some way cataloging those transfers in uh, the transfers that are definitely appropriate because in our rural community, we would never care for that type of patient here. Uh, cataloging those patients that we would definitely keep in our organization. And then those that were in the gray area of a potential uh, patient that we could have kept, but maybe we just didn't have one or more uh, uh, elements. We didn't have the right equipment. We didn't have the right training. We didn't have mm -hmm. some, for some reason, we could not have kept that patient or the provider yeah. made a decision to transfer the patient and maybe that should not have occurred. You know, and some of the challenges, as you know, Carla, in small rural hospitals, we're a little different. A lot of my colleagues tell me, man, you have everything there. But in rural communities, oftentimes we find they do not have access to ENT. They do not have an intensivist. They do not have nephrology. We're fortunate that we have been able to build these over the last three years. But I'm sure you find that as a significant barrier to moving the patient from the ER upstairs to any floor. And I, and I think that is, you know, when we start looking at sustainability of hospitals and growth strategies, it's oftentimes we have to look at it from the emergency department perspective. What are we seeing in the ER that we can transfer in here instead of transferring out? So every morning, 
I get a transfer uh, report and I'm looking, what did we transfer out and why? And we have been able to successfully over the course of the last several years, remove all of the doubt about why a patient is transferred. Because I would scratch my head, a like hospital, a sister hospital too far from here, getting a transfer from my ER to their ER of, uh, no, that makes no sense. We're, you know, I have more services than they offer. And so we were able to tackle that. But oftentimes, I'm sure you find this to be the case, you see where hospitals cannot offer those services. Let me ask you a question then. What advice do you give the rural hospital who's losing significant market share and volume because they do not have these baseline services? What would be a recommendation that would come from you? Um, well, that's the uh, one of the benefits to the everyday review and your transfers is to keep up and track while we transfer out. And is this a service that we may want to think about adding to our hospital or to our community. Is it feasible? Mm -hmm. Could Mm -hmm. we possibly do that? And, you know, JJ, we found with our work that many of these organizations had consultants that they could reach out to through telehealth, but they weren't using them. They Mm -hmm. also had the ability to work closely with some other specialists in the community, but that wasn't happening either. And until Mm -hmm. this process um, was completed, they didn't really know that that was actually going on. We had um, respiratory therapy was one issue. The hospitals didn't have 24-7 respiratory therapy. But, you know, back in my day, nurses did a lot more of the respiratory therapy work. So for a couple of these hospitals, they had their respiratory therapy department teach the nurses refresh their skills, Hmm. have them do the best that they can to keep those patients back by um, increasing their competencies and their comfort level. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, where, so, all right, starting point, where do you start when it comes to creating a clinical care delivery spectrum? You know, talk to us a little bit about that. And then I guess you can speak from experience, um, collaboration, with that specific team uh, at that specific hospital to, in fact, move the needle. Many times experts like you uh, come to organizations like mine, and we don't have the bench strength uh, in many cases to implement a a fraction of the recommendations. I was so overwhelmed after Stroudwater left the third time. With (laughs) I I looked at this, just this endless things that I had to do. Um, But how do you move the needle? And, uh, you know, talking first about creating the clinical care, you know, delivery model, how do you move the needle? The beauty of this project for all of the hospitals is that we work hand in hand with the hospitals on understanding the process. So the first process being what transfers, what period of time do we want to look at? We want to look at probably about the last six months of your transfers. First, carving out those transfers that you know we would never, ever keep in our organization. It's just not the right place for them to be. And starting with the transfers and basically stratifying those those transfers in to whether or not this was a service-related transfer, was this a, a provider, um, the, the variation in the providers is unbelievable, but is this a provider preference? And we never, ever plan to uh, have a provi- tell a provider how to provide care, but we do want providers at the table to help us 
help the hospital with understanding why they made a decision to transfer. The case study hospital Mm -hmm. did have two providers plus the team that we recommend of uh, nursing, your uh, materials management, your pharmacy, uh, your case manager, all of the different entities within our organization that need to come together to talk about what type of patients we can safely care for in our organization. And we had uh, in that particular uh, case study, there were two providers who participated and that makes all the difference in the world because they can actually see where maybe we should have kept that patient or they can um, make recommendations to nursing. They would feel better about keeping a patient if nursing could do X, Y, Z. Do we just need more telemetry boxes? All the things, but, but hospitals don't formally go through a step-by-step process. And as we suspected, um, there is a great deal of variation in providers. One provider on one (laughs) evening in an ER will admit a patient and the same type of patient the next day with a different Mm -hmm. provider will be transferred. You know, and Carla, I think you find also correct me if I'm not wrong, that now that hospitals have switched to hospitalist uh, and you find now this great divide, we do, between the emergency department physicians and the inpatient physicians, and there's a huge fight. Right. About, I was going to ask you about that. The expectation yeah. of the hospitalists of yeah. what is needed before the patient is moved up and accepted into their service versus the expectation of the emergency department yeah. provider who's saying, he may, they meet qualifications for admission, send them right up, right? Mm-hmm. Do you see that clash? Uh, quite frequently. And that's why we ask for mm-hmm. both sides to be at the table with us. Yes. So that there mm-hmm. can be a an understanding. And this provides a, a clarity for the organization. It provides clarity for your nursing staff. These are the type of patients that we can admit to our, to our floor, um, that they are appropriate. And then there's less pushback. Um, In many of our organizations, there happens to be nursing pushback. I was going to ask about that, too. What about the the difference between not just provider to provider, but nursing to provider Mm -hmm. and nursing to nursing in the different units? And and many times, you're right, Rachel, the nurses have the ear of the provider and say, no, we can't do that. And and, okay, uh, maybe you can't, but let's figure out why. Is it because you haven't Absolutely. done that in several years? That's something that you um, had, you've kind of lost your skill in that area. So do we need education? Mm-hmm. We did have um, in the first group of hospitals we worked with, it was very interesting. One of the hospitals found that their nurses um, had over the years stopped using some of the higher acuity skills that they originally mm-hmm. um, had from nursing school. When they brought in new grads, their new grads were dissatisfied. They didn't want to take mm-hmm. care of just low acuity patients. Right, right, right. And this particular right. hospital was very capable of admitting higher acuity. Mm-hmm. It had just mm-hmm. over the years, that's the way we'd always done it. You know, you've heard that before. And so it, <laughs> yep. it was a, sa- a staff dissatisfier for the new grads too. Um, they wanted yeah. to take care of higher acuity patients. So. That, that was an eye-opener for them. Right. Certainly. So it sounds like the we can't do that 
is always turned around as, but could we? Right. Could we? Right. Right. Is it reasonable to make some changes and maybe get, like you said, some equipment or, or work on some competencies or skill up some staff to be able to do those things? Mm-hmm. So why do you think that this is such a struggle in rural hospitals, even when the acuity level is not, to your point, not so complex that the patient has to be transferred? It still is not always as easy to admit the patient as we might think it should be. Why do you think this is an issue in rural in particular? I think over the years, um, and, and this does come from a, a, a lot of experience with lack of transportation. Um, over the years, hospitals have really struggled. Once they admit someone to their floor or they place them in observation, it's harder for them to uh, have that patient transferred if the patient doesn't do well. So mm, they have the, um, um, we hear what ifs, a lot of what ifs. Yep. Well, what if <laughs> this or what if that, then oh, I can't get Lord, them out. Sister. You know, so that's where that, mm-hmm. that mentality is a barrier in itself. Yes, it is. How many times have I heard, why would I accept that patient? What if? They crash. What if I, we couldn't get into hospital X a week ago when we had a patient that was, you know, crashing? And I, Carla, I hear it all the time and it frustrates me so much. If we're not here to take care of those patients, we might as well just close the doors. We should be caring for those patients in our, we have, you know, triple board certified physicians, mm-hmm. for God's sakes. Right. We should be able to offer this type of level Up of care. Up until the point that we truly can't, yeah. we need to be doing everything we, we can to, to and keep those patients. And then there's an appropriate patients. time where you do need to appropriately transfer that patient for services you cannot offer. But but that is that is oftentimes a significant challenge and, and for us a barrier to admission. Well, and JJ, I also tell the hospitals, okay, now after we go through this process, and you change, you remove some of the barriers, and you change the way of thinking. Once we start admitting more of these patients, let's track those that we do have to send out as well, because Mm -hmm. we want Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're following this uh, process and that we aren't admitting patients that we shouldn't be taking care of there. So we need to track on that that side too. Of, you yeah. know, how many times does it happen that we have to? Yes, does it happen? Right. And so we're making, you know, this decision based on once, two years ago. Uh, how many times have I had to chase that down? Well, remember when that was? And I'll be like, Doc, that was back in 1998. <laughs> and I do remember that, but that can't be a barrier for 2023. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so th- those are, those are, so uh, w- if we were talking about engagement, Carla, let's assume it's a small hospital. It's not critical access. It's just a small non-for-profit. It's a tweener. It's uh, not the big system, but it's not critical. Uh, maybe a hundred bed hospital. What type of, uh, of, of commitment does that look like for me as a hospital? Are we talking, can this be achieved in, in six months, three months, a year? What does that look like for the engagement? Uh, I would say that it could be achieved in a very short period of time. Uh, providing that the team, um, the team can come together um, and and go through the transfers together, not providers looking at transfers on their own, but the mm-hmm. team reviewing the transfers and really starting mm-hmm. just to craft out a um, a list of patients that are potentially avoidable transfers. 
those type of patients that may be um, a lower risk. Um, and, and those would patients that if, if it's a, let's say cardiac, for instance, if it's a cardiac patient, but it's a low risk cardiac, would we keep that patient yeah. as opposed to the high risk right. cardiac? So right. you can right. have um, a very quick turnaround on this project, provided the team can take the time to come together and review those transfers. So you may be looking at um, two to three months if you have a dedicated team to review the transfers and discuss why we are sending certain patients out. Okay. So we have always done it that way, and that will not work here. Those are the two biggest barriers. It's like instead of death by a thousand paper cuts, it's death by a thousand what ifs and what what can'ts. Right. So let's talk about why an implementation like this could not be successful. What are the barriers? What do you see as like, all right, this is not going to work for you so so that our other CEOs listening to this podcast across America can go, okay, yeah, we've heard that it can work, but what what's the downside of this? What's a barrier? You know, what do we have to be watching out for? What are the pitfalls? We We need leadership support and we need provider buy-in. The providers are key. We want to decrease that variation in the provider decision-making. So we need providers at the table and there need to be um, supportive providers so that they can be our champions and and help us craft what is appropriate for our organization, what type of patients are appropriate. Yeah. And, and would you do this through education? In other words, so let's say that I have this very tough hospitalist who just absolutely feels that, you know, we can't admit everything and you get him to the table. I get him there because I order that he comes there, right? So he comes to the <laughs> table. Uh, how do you convince this provider that these are the best practices or the things that he or she should be doing? After all, I studied at XYZ. How do you, how do you get this individual to see value in, in moving the needle on this? My first thought would be, I need to understand his why. There you go. Mm, mm-hmm. why, why, why do you think not? Why do you feel as though this patient or this type of patient can't be cared for at the organization? Is it, mm-hmm. Does it have to do with your concern about nursing staff? We find that a lot too. But they've oh. never spoke up about that so we didn't know that they were concerned Mm -hmm. right and then you can't skill up your team if you don't know what skills the the provider needs them to be sharper with right absolutely so you know barriers challenges hospitals that are losing uh revenue you know you see the headlines Mm -hmm. if you pick up uh, anything on becker's Every day, I'm getting too many Becker's reports daily. <laughs> They're depressing me. I put them in a uh, folder via a rule so I can go to them when okay. I'm mentally prepared. All right. They're, they're getting worse. They're just getting worse. Yes. And, and you know, what we see is declining volumes, declining revenues. But I, I got to, I have to somehow think that the ER patients are still out in our community that have walked away. So I want to ask you a question. You've been, you've done this for eight years now. You did this pre-pandemic, probably in during the pandemic and post-pandemic. Absolutely. I, I, I would submit to you that my colleagues across the state have told me that, much like me, they have lost significant 
volume in their emergency departments post-pandemic. Now, in part, that could be good, right? Those who are using the ER for back pain, chronic illness, that's not an appropriate place right. for them. They but, may just learn to live without yeah. it during COVID, and then it's they're not you know, compelled yeah. to come back if they figured out how to manage. But we do know that several beyond just that have just, they're, they're just not using the ER. When they do need it, yeah. When they do need it. And so, in your mind, how do you establish that relationship back in the community? Um, and and I ask that question selfishly, okay? Um, because for Hillsdale, as an example, you know, we at one point were seeing 90, 110 in the emergency department, you know, 15 years ago uh, each day. And during the pandemic, it, it shrunk. And rightly so, because everybody was told by, you know, the governors of states across this country that don't go to your ERs, they're not safe. Well, in public health and even some healthcare associations put that message out very, very early on. And it, you know, turned out to be a misstep. It was a a huge misstep. But, and I'm not preaching here, but looking at, you know, that information and knowing that, you know, the pandemic brought us a decline, um, a lot of the hospitals— at least in Michigan, I serve on the Michigan Hospital Association, we talk about it all the time, uh, have not bounced back. But those patients still have needs. How do we connect post-pandemic in your mind from what you've worked with to build that relationship back up? Um, I think there are really two very important things. One is we need to make sure as we uh, opened with the window to our community, we need to make sure our community understands that We're serious about our um, timeliness of emergency care. We are monitoring our um, throughput times to make sure that they are um, able to get into our emergency department in a timely manner. We don't want to lose patients because our wait times are astronomical. So we, you know, we want to have good times and we want to market that to our community. We also Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hear from uh, hospital uh, patients, why would I go there? They're just going to transfer me. Yeah. So yes. Yes. we want to make sure that we don't have that reputation of being someone that is the Band-Aid station and that you can't be admitted to that hospital in your own community. So you might That's as well drive plan. on or have someone take you to the uh, hospital that you would have been transferred to because that's where you're going to go anyway. That is a great point. And I think that's the biggest barrier that Mm -hmm. rural Mm -hmm. hospitals face. Oh, it's a Band-Aid station. And in fact, here at Hillsdale, we have a full continuum of care Mm -hmm. outside of doing heart surgery, Mm -hmm. ENT, urology, neurosurgery. We're doing it all. And for someone to remember since the hospitals were around for over a hundred years to say, oh, it's, I remember what happened back in the sixties and seventies when we took mom in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you get, you know, you get coined the Band-Aid station, but uh, it's far greater now of opportunity to serve our patients in this community. And I think that's something that we have to cling to as well as mm-hmm. we look at trying to boost those numbers. You know, so I, I guess, in, you know, our time is coming to a close here. What recommendations, so you've got, this is a, a podcast that goes out across the country. Uh, you have CEOs, COOs, ER directors listening to this. What advice would you give them for next steps in how to regain some of that stability back into their, where do they start into their, into their community hospital ERs? Well, first understanding uh, from the care delivery spectrum, uh, first understanding what you are transferring out of your community. 
um, because that does have a great deal to do with the perspective of your um, community members. Um, and then make sure that we are um, out and about in the community. We're at health fairs. We, um, we share all of the wonderful services that we do have in our organization. Unfortunately, in our uh, community uh, uh, rural hospitals, many of the members of the community don't know what's offered at that organization. So they, mm -hmm. they really don't know that you have certain services that they could benefit from. And so they drive down the road or have someone take them elsewhere. We don't want to lose anyone because then we lose our labs. We lose our radiology services. We want to be able to, right. to provide all the services for our own community. So you know, the first step is to understand um, the perspective of our community and change that change that reputation of being that Band-Aid station by yeah. having mm -hmm. timely um, emergency care and also by yeah. admitting the appropriate patients to your organization. Right. Well, it's a great work that you're doing, Carla, and I, I really firmly believe it's the link to saving rural hospitals in America because what is driven out of that emergency department is so important to the viability of those respective rural hospitals, specifically specialty care, general surgery, urology. It all the, That's the segue right there. You know, if someone comes in having kidney stone pain, all right, refer them to your urologist. Otherwise, if they're going to other competitor hospitals, they're gone. They're out of your system. Right. And, and here's what we know about big health systems. We never, in rural, get those hospitals back. Right ever. They're staying in that system now. They have absorbed into that system. So I really firmly believe that this type of work that you're doing could, in fact, change the margins at small rural hospitals so they can be profitable mm -hmm. once again. And that is so important because you know as well as I do, without your community hospital, so goes your community. Absolutely. Your economics, you know, your your desire to bring in new manufacturing and companies, it's all gone. And so it is so critical then for us to get a handle on it. And it begins in our ER, as you said, uh, as that window and door for this hospital. So our time is lapsed. Unfortunately, we're, we're coming to a close here today. I want to thank you, Carla, for the, the time that you've given us to explain this. And we're going to put your contact information uh, out so that way when we post this, if anyone's interested uh, in reaching out to you, they can to schedule an opportunity to the speak. The case study will be in the show notes and we'll put Stroudwater's uh, website and all that. Fantastic. So, Carla, thanks for joining us again today on Rural Health Rising. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. And before we go, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. All right. You've been in rural all of your life. You know what that's like. I want to know what is your most rural experience or one of your favorite memories that's unique to rural life? Anything that you've done now, listen, we've heard it all. We've seen it all here in rural Hillsdale. Amish buggies, you know, hitched to, to the side of the hospital, tractors bringing patients up. Uh, you know, we heard stories on this uh, podcast before of chickens chasing politicians down the road. We've heard it all. But my question to you is, what was your most unique experience in rural America? Um, well, I have to say I have had a, a few minutes of fame when I was on our local TV uh, uh, show, the local TV news, because I had to give the um, all of the rabies shots to a family 
that had a rabid cow. Oh, rabid cow. So that's how I made it to TV. <laughs> Did you milk that for all it was worth? I tell you. Well, that's great. I tell oh you. That gosh. is a, I mean, well, we're going to move right on uh, in the segment. Well, you certainly know More what corn than a cornfield in rural oh, America. That this was guy. good. That was good. <laughs> Carla, that's a great story. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. 